The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. January 22nd, 2007, but the rest of her family, part of our soul and part of our being is murdered every day. This week, I will be telling you the case of Karen Bodine. But first, let's head to our PNW town profile. Olympia, Washington is the capital of Washington state and the largest city in Thurston County. It is 60 miles southwest of Seattle. The site of Olympia had been home for thousands of years to Lachute Seed-speaking people. Other Native Americans regularly visited the head of Bud Inlet. The first recorded Europeans came to visit in 1792 and included Peter Puget and a crew from the British Vancouver Expedition. However, none of their recorded accounts document coming across indigenous people during their exploration of the Olympia area. In 1846, more explorers arrived and claimed the land that is now downtown Olympia. The population grew with Oregon Trail immigrants. In 1850, the name Olympia was chosen because of the view of the Olympic Mountains. Towards the end of 1854, Governor Isaac I. Stevens negotiated the Treaty of Medicine Creek, which included preservation of indigenous fishing, hunting, and gathering. By signing, it forced the Native Americans to move to one of three reservations nearby, forfeiting the land that they had farmed and lived on. One of the leaders, Chief Leshy, was outraged and refused to give up the ownership of his land, which sparked the Puget Sound War. The war ended with the controversial execution of Chief Leshy. Olympia went on to be an incorporated town in January of 1859. 
As of the 2010 census, the population was just over 46,000, and the city borders Lacey to the east and Tumwater to the south. Now, on to our story. In January 2007, Karen Bodine was a 37 year old mother of three, and she was in crisis. She had battled addiction on and off for years. On Friday, January 19th, she had been forced out of her house that she was living with her boyfriend due to a domestic violence situation. Over that weekend, detectives believe she was hanging out with a rough crowd in an alleged drug house. On Monday morning, her body was found near the entrance of an old gravel quarry in Thurston County, about four miles north of Rochester, Washington. Karen's three kids were in sixth grade, a freshman, and a senior in high school. Today, I have our oldest daughter, Carly, with me to get a better picture of her mother and how the effect of Karen's murder still impacts everyone who loved her to this day. Carly, thanks for joining me. Can you tell me a little bit about your mom? As a child, my grandparents have told me that my mom was a great kid, but she was also her own child. We have a picture somewhere, I, I need to find it, where she has curlers in her hair. And she loved to read, but I think she was like painting her nails or doing something too. So she was holding a book with her toes and turning it. And I mean, that takes talent. So she was, she was an interesting child. She did cheerleading. She did soccer. She did, I believe, softball. When she grew up more towards like middle school and high school, she did basketball and volleyball. And I think she did drama too. So, I mean, she just tried a little bit of everything, and she was good at everything she did. As a child, she was usually a good child, you know, especially in public because she was raised right. But she was also a mischievous child, and she would get in trouble and do things she wasn't supposed to, you know. So, one time, my grandma had left my uncle and my mom alone because back in that day, it was way more acceptable to do so. And I believe they were at the right age. My mom was like between 12 or 14 or something like that. Well, she wanted to bake cookies. And she'd always had help, you know, with my grandma and doing it and everything. Well, she forgot the baking powder or the baking soda or something. And she forgot to put the timer on the oven. So, It created quite the event. Like I said, you know, she was definitely her own child. But she made friends no matter what. She can make friends with anyone the shy person, the outgoing person, the popular person, the not so much popular person. She wanted to be friends and genuinely know everyone. And everyone says, oh, your mom was so pretty, or, you know, whatever. But mostly what made her pretty is. Her inside, because she never would have been so pretty physically if it wasn't for how beautiful she was on the inside. Like it showed, you know, just because of her natural, beautiful personality. Right before she graduated high school, her brother suffered a major accident. It was in eastern Washington and it was a car accident. And he was in a coma for months and months and months on end. The doctors had told my grandparents. Don't bother coming to see him. He's not going to make it. He ended up making it. It took years of rehab and therapy and everything. And to this day, he lives with permanent scars and disabilities 
this happened right before she graduated high school. And my grandparents, I think, were doing it out of a kindness for my mom. And they did let her go see my uncle. But like I said, this happened in eastern Washington. So my grandparents would go spend a week or a, a few weeks or a month at the time at the hospital in eastern Washington and leave my mom at a friend or relative's house. So my mom was essentially alone during all of this because my grandparents didn't want her to see him that way. Like, I mean, he was in tubes and cast and I mean, they didn't think he was going to make it. He had almost graduated Gonzaga. And when he woke up from his coma months, almost a year later, he thought he was like a sophomore or junior or something in high school. And he was freaking out because he had a paper due, he thought. But he also couldn't tie his shoes or hold a fork. So it was a really long, hard road to recovery. And so my grandparents tried to protect my mom as best they could and not let her see all of that and kept her home more than not. And it was out of love and protection, but my mom was young, and I don't think she saw that. I think she felt left out and hurt, and she was struggling with depression, and that wasn't really talked about back then, and it was very stigmatized and taboo, so it was just pushed under the rug. And so she started self-medicating, you know, at first with light stuff, with, like, drinking and pot. So And it, and it was just a casual thing, like a weekend warrior or whatever you know just to to numb the pain to self-medicate to to help her through this tragedy and then she graduated high school and shortly after graduating high school she had me as a very young mother so she had a very busy life from from the start and when she had me most of the pregnancy was normal but she went to the doctor one day just for a normal checkup the doctor took one look at her, and this was in Olympia or Lacey or, you know, that area, took one look at her and said, you're taking a helicopter to Seattle right now. And she was not far long enough to give birth. And so they, they flew her up to a Swedish hospital, and there's this big whole ordeal. I have a newspaper article about it. We were actually on the front page way back when. I only weighed a pound. And a few ounces. I weigh, you know, so I was less than two pounds when I was born. And they put me in an incubator and I ripped the IV out of my arm. Like, all I wanted to do was, was be with my mom. My grandma has this picture. And it's my mom standing outside looking at me in the incubator just crying because she couldn't hold me yet. And here's me trying to rip this IV out of my arm just trying to get to my mom. And there's my mom a few feet away just wanting to get to me. We've been fighters, you know, since the start. She's always been a strong woman. Even through the throes of her addiction, she was such a strong woman. Even in her deepest, darkest days, when she was struggling with her demons and her own afflictions, she still thought and knew and made time about us. She either tried to give us presents or make phone calls or write letters or come see us. And I mean, it was always nice to get a present for my mom. Don't get me wrong, but that's not what I cared about. The present was seeing my mom. And I mean, there was a lot of times when she was doing well that she would live with us. My grandparents adopted us 
at a young age just to give us a stable environment. But when my mother was doing well, she would either live with us or she would get her own place and my grandparents would let us stay with her. It was only when she wasn't doing well that we would stay with my grandparents and she would go off and do her own thing. And I think that was more out of pride and respect and embarrassment on her part. You know, she didn't want to hurt her family and let them see her that way. On the day Karen's body was discovered, her parents, Dave and Sharon Bodine, had an early morning appointment. They were a real estate team and on their way for a business meeting. According to the Olympian newspaper, Dave usually would take the freeway, but Sharon hates the freeway, so they took the old way that day. They passed a portion of the highway where they saw helicopters circling and flashing lights ahead. Dave was a former firefighter and fire commissioner and made the comment to Sharon that it was not good. Later that day, the Bodines got a knock at their door and detectives broke the news that it was Karen. Dave had seen his daughter that day without knowing it was her. I got a phone call from a boy that I kind of thought was cute. I mean, we talked sometimes, but he didn't always call. So I was like, ooh, I want to take this call. And he was like, Carly, I am so sorry. And I was like, you're sorry about what? What are you talking about? He goes, no, Carly, just please, like, I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. Please. We can get coffee. We can do anything. Like, like, what are you talking about? And I think that's when he realized I didn't know. And he panicked and he hung up. Now, don't get me wrong. I probably would have done the same thing in the situation. Like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? You know what I mean? So I, I completely understand his actions, and we've spoken since then, and he's been very supportive and everything. But also, I was living with my paternal grandparents at the time, and I had a boyfriend that had lived just down the street, like a few blocks from their house, and I was hanging out with him at his family's house. And she came over, and she goes, Carla, we need to talk. And so I go outside, and I remember it was cold, it was kind of rainy, and we were standing in a spot where people walked a lot. So there was grass, but there was also, like, mud spots. And she goes, Carly, your mom died. And I said, what? And she goes, Carly, your mom is passed. And I crumpled. The next thing I knew, I was on the ground, in the mud, curled up in a ball. I remember holding the mud in between my hands and having it, like, be cold. And I remember my hands being cold. And then not caring. I remember the mud being in my hair. And I was such a girly girl. Like, usually I would hate that. And I I didn't care. You have the wrong person. This isn't right. Like, you got the wrong information. Something's wrong. No. And then she goes, Carly, you need to go home. There's more I need to tell you. And at that point, I got up and I walked away. I, I shouldn't have. And... It's a small town. I didn't really cause any, like, damage or, like, anything like that. But I walked around the town for a while, and I I kicked some garbage cans or knocked over some garbage cans and kicked some stop signs and just, like, was angry. Like, I was hurt. And I remember calling my mom's boyfriend. I said, you killed my mom. You killed my mom. You, You murdered my mom. You killed her. Because at the time, I didn't know any better. 
I had assumed it was a boyfriend, and I assumed it had to do something to do with drugs. I was naive. I didn't know too much about drugs. So I thought there was some type of correlation. That was my first person to blame. And so eventually, I made it back home, back to my Nana's. And that's when she broke more of the news to me. It was, it was a suspicious death, possibly a homicide. Original news reports of the murder described Karen as a transient drug addict. This put the case at a disadvantage. The public tends to follow the lead of the media and law enforcement on whether or not a case is important. It's human nature and it's unfortunate. But the truth is, once a victim is labeled a criminal, a drug addict, a sex worker, or a transient, public interest in the case will dwindle. This makes the people who have found themselves in any of those categories more vulnerable to criminals, as they know the chances of getting caught are far lower. Right directly after her murder, the newspaper, without the knowledge or consent of the family, ran an article And I believe the caption was corpse found on side of road. And it wrote this horrible article about my mother that had absolutely nothing to do with her murder. It victim shamed her. It victim shamed her very badly. It painted her in a very bad light. On the worst day of her life and her family's life, the paper chooses to do this. They printed an old mugshot of her, a very unflattering old mugshot of her, when there is many beautiful pictures. They never requested a picture. They just chose to do that. I believe they also ran one of her old misdemeanor uh, arrest records, which, if you read it out of context, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. And if it's the proper report I'm thinking of, My dad and herself had gotten in a domestic dispute, like an argument. And my mom was a feisty woman. And if she wanted to make a point, she'd make a point. And I think she had, like, bitten my dad's toe. I mean, not, like, bitten it off or not, like, he needed stitches or had to go to the hospital or or anything like that. But they were making such a ruckus, the police got called. And I believe that's what the police report was. And so it painted my mom in a horrible light and it made her look like a crazy woman when that was not true at all, especially the family. Like, it's a funny story. It it was nothing violent. It was nothing like that. Like, my father has hurt my mother way worse in other arguments, for sure. Also, what really bothers me is in the initial report, they reported her as homeless and transient, which, let me make this very clear, no offense or anything to anyone that is homeless or transient because they deserve respect as well. But she was not transient. She was living at my grandparents' home for an extended amount of time. And then she moved with her boyfriend. And then on a Friday, I believe it was January 19th, 2007, she had gotten in a dispute and the cops had gotten called. And she was the more emotional, upset one when the cops got there. And then they chose to ask her to be the one to leave the premises, at least for the time being. And so a mutual friend, which was her boyfriend's friend that she also knew, lived fairly close, like within walking distance down the street. 
And she probably thought, oh my gosh, I can't call my parents. This is embarrassing. Let me figure this out. You know, let me get my head straight. From Friday night until either Sunday late night or Monday early morning, she was found dead in Rochester. So she was like couch surfing at her one friend's house for two days before she was dead. That is not transient. Not many details have been made available to the public or the family of Karen Bodine. The detective on the case states that holding back information is a way to vet information when a person calls to say they have a tip on the case. If things have not been released to the public and a tip comes in, if they can corroborate part of the details, it's more likely that the other portion of the tip would be true. But here is what has been confirmed with the Thurston County Sheriff's Office. About an hour before her body was found, a woman reportedly saw a vehicle near the location. It was described as an early 1980s brown Datsun that appeared to be abandoned. The vehicle was gone by the time the person had discovered Karen's body had arrived. When she was found, she had a ligature around her neck, but the sheriff's office has not detailed her cause of death to the family, aside from stating she suffered homicidal violence. The weekend before she was found, we have bits and pieces to put together the situation. On Friday, she had been evicted from her residence by the sheriff's office based on a protection order filed against her that day. She began staying at a friend of her boyfriend's house that weekend. The home was well known by law enforcement and the community as a drug house. There were multiple people staying there that weekend. And almost everyone who was known to be staying at the house has been arrested since then for some form of drug activity. The unexpected variable for Karen's murder is Carly. She has become her mom's advocate ever since her death in 2007. Carly was a senior in high school, and to this day, she is vocal on message boards and Facebook groups and reaching out to folks who have a platform such as myself to find the truth. She doesn't shy away from her mom's problems. She'll tell you straight up that she struggled with drugs for a portion of her life, but she will also tell you stories of what a loving mother she was as well. My mom had her struggles with addiction, but I also think it was a a part of self-medication because mental health awareness and help for it wasn't around as much back then. And so I think that's the main reason she used, but... Even in the throes of her addiction, even in the deepest throes of her addiction, she still thought of her kids. She still made us birthday cakes. She still went to our sporting events and our luncheons at school. And she would still come visit us. And she would still make every opportunity to see us or call us or get us a little gift or something. I remember my Aunt Lynn had taken her shopping and said, fill the card up, Karen, because I want to buy you a bunch of stuff. And then my Aunt Lynn went a different way, and my mom went to go shop, and they met back up, and my Aunt Lynn goes, gosh darn it, Karen, I told you to buy stuff for you. She had filled up the whole cart with stuff for her kids, for us. You know, she didn't buy try to buy one single thing for her. She tried to buy a bunch of stuff for us. You know, and I, and my Aunt Lynn was like, I, I love your sentiment, you know, but your, your kids are provided for your grandparents. Like, I want to get something for you, you know. Um, her heart was always in the right place. My grandparents would give her money to get some cat food or dye her hair or get some new clothes. 
And she would spend some money on that. And then she would show up with presents for us. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's not what this is for. And she would show up to sporting events that we didn't know she was going to be at. You know, um, she was a fighter. She was a trooper. She was feisty. If she couldn't get a ride or a hitchhike or something, she would ride her bike from like Lacey out to almost Little Rock, which is like 20 miles and come see us. You know, like she was determined. She loved her children. And at the end, there's reports of her carrying a baby doll. And I think that was her coping mechanism and a way of being with her children or having a child, even though she was separated with her own, she still had a connection in some way at that point because she was using it at that point. And so I think that was a way for her to cope and help her like be closer to her children. She loved us no matter what to the end, to the core, like drugs or not. She is the best mother, and I would not ask for anyone else. The only thing I would ask for, obviously, is for her to not be murdered, but she was the best mother anyone could ask for. And my mother had ups and downs in her struggles and sobriety. She would have stints of using, but she would also have stints or long periods of being clean. She was a lunch lady at our school for a long time. She worked at Safeway. She was a makeup person at her department store at the mall. She worked at McDonald's. Uh, I think she got in trouble for sneaking us extra Happy Meal toys. And those are just the jobs I remember off the top of my head. When she was sober, she was working. And if she wasn't working, she was being like a house mom and like cleaning the house and making us lunches and, you know, doing the mom thing. She had very long stints of sobriety as well. And that's what really frustrates me is that gets looked over and no one talks about that is there's long periods of her life where she was a normal mom and she was sober and she was just a mom to us, you know. Since day one, I've been jumping up and down, waving my arms and shouting, and I feel like no one has listened. We get a newspaper article here and there, and originally, as we've talked about, They were spotty and rude, and they didn't communicate with the family. They've gotten a little better, and the articles have gotten better. We communicate a little better now. So I've gotten some newspaper articles out. I've done a few news clips and stuff like that. I, with my personal money, along with generous donations from the community, have raised enough money to get one billboard up, and then now we have a second billboard up. So for a very short period of time, two billboards will be up. The first one's about to come down, and the second one will only be up for a little while. I guess you can rent more time. I just don't have enough money to do that. I do have a Venmo account where you can donate, and I do have a Facebook page for my mother. I have done a Hulkin Wave with Sam Moyer. I have flyers, and I pass them out. So I like when I go to the example, when I go to the grocery store, I park as far away as I can and I'll put a flyer on every single person's car before I make it into the grocery store. I take every opportunity to tell anyone and everyone about this. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliant's lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at smilebrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an upper left corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their night guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on-demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. Another person who has stepped up and taken action for Karen is Detective Mickey Hamilton. He got involved once the case had gone cold. Despite the fact that he was not ever assigned to the case and is not a cold case detective, Detective Hamilton learned of Karen's murder while he was on patrol and would think about it when he drove by while on duty. He still monitors the area where Karen's body was discovered to see if he comes across someone who came back to visit for memorial reasons. The area is a known dump site. Criminals use the area to leave stolen vehicles and cover other illegal activities. From the evidence at the scene, it appears that Karen was killed at a different location and the gravel quarry road was a secondary location for the dumping of the body. It's to be noted that whoever dumped her body here likely wanted her to be found. She seemed to be posed, and this was a busy portion of Highway 12, especially during the morning commute hours when she was discovered. I believe he had heard about it when he first started the force. He had just kind of heard rumors and stories of the case, but he lives down south, and he would drive past the site every day going to work. And so he wanted more information about it. And obviously, there's more information about it at his work. And so he looked up the case and he learned more information. And this was right about the crime solved time. And there was a break in the Moyer case. And then he did a new case. And right away, he was like, you need to do Karen Bodine's case. And we would not have gotten on CrimeCon if it was not for Mickey Hamilton. That's what I'm saying. Oh, by the way. This isn't his job. He's not assigned to Karen Bodine or Nancy Moyer's case. He is a different detective. Like, he's like a major crime or whatever. But he works on my case and Nancy's as well. It's amazing. Detective Mickey Hamilton is not only heading up this case. He's also investigating the case of Nancy Moyer out of Tenino, Washington. 
Nancy's disappearance was the subject of the popular podcast Hide and Seek that got a huge break during the making of the podcast. I highly suggest that you listen to that podcast as well if you haven't already. I plan on covering Nancy's case in the near future as well. Carly has found a friend in Nancy Moyer's daughter, Sam. They have bonded over the loss of their mothers. I've known about Sam Moyer for a long time, especially since the case started. I've seen her on Facebook and all that stuff. But I believe we officially met at CrimeCon. And then we started talking on Facebook all the time. And we supported each other. But it was more of like a far away thing. But... Recently, we've become more friends. She came to my mother's event for her vigil, January 22nd, uh, 2021. That's the 14-year anniversary of my mother's murder. And she came to my vigil, and she kind of reached out to me. And she's like, Carly, I've seen what you do. Can you help me? And in my brain, I was like, what? She's done so much more, and she's asking for my help. So we decided to team up. And it's been amazing. We recently did this Honk and Wave event, and that was planned in like 24 hours. So imagine if we properly plan an event, it, it could get, you know, really big or we can get a lot of attention, you know. So I really look forward to the future and the things that we can do together. We privately support each other, and we'll continue to do that whether we work together publicly or not. I hate that we have each other, but I love that we have each other. Like, I hate that we met through this tragedy, but I'm so thankful that we have because I can tell her, like, I just broke down crying and I don't know why. And she's like, no, dude, I did that two weeks ago. I get it. We understand each other, which which is good. You know, we need someone like that. Like, I'm so sorry. I would do anything that I could for her to not go through that. But I'm thankful that I have someone, too. Besides my family, my brother and sister are very supportive, but, you know, like, besides my family, I'm so thankful for her. Desperate for a break in the case, Detective Mickey Hamilton submitted Karen's cold case to be considered for the Seattle crowd solve event. After the first planned case, which was Nancy Moyers, had a big break right before crowd solve. Crowd solve is a true crime event at CrimeCon that brings together citizen sleuths, Detectives working on the case and experts to review the case with fresh eyes and collectively attempt to solve the case. It was the first of its kind. CrimeCon selects a different U.S. location every year to have a giant convention that gathers podcasters, filmmakers, web sleuths, and true crime fans. In October of 2019, CrimeCon introduced their first crowd solve event and featured the cases of Karen Bodine and Nancy Moyer. Experts in attendance included Art Roderick, who has a 40-year law enforcement career, 25 of those in the U.S. Marshals. Upon retirement, Art became CNN's on-air law enforcement analyst. He's also been featured on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries, and most recently, he executive produced and starred in the Oxygen six-part series, The Disappearance of Maura Murray. James Basinger, the host of Hide and Seek, Detective Mickey Hamilton, Dr. Maurice Godwin, who specializes in investigative psychology, crime scene analysis, missing persons, and geographic profiling of abductors and serial killers. He has aided local, state, and federal law enforcement and is a frequent commentator in high-profile cases. Dr. Godwin accurately profiled the DC sniper, which I have that case on my list as well because it has some strong PNW ties, and an expert advisor on the Up and Vanished podcast about the disappearance of Tara Grinstead out of South Georgia. There were also world-renowned forensic experts, 
a police surgeon, statement analyst, and medical investigator. I was nervous. I didn't know how it was going to go or what to expect. It was also the first of its kind. It actually went a lot better than I thought. There was, you know, some people there for the wrong reason, of course, like every event. But for the most part, there were genuine, kind, sincere people there. They really, truly cared about both cases. And I've actually made friends to this day from that event. So I'm actually very thankful it happened. And I hope they do more like them. And I hope that my case gets solved. And hopefully we can do a follow-up of it. The biggest piece of evidence they have are three different DNA samples that investigators say were found on Karen's body. Crowdsolve offered to pay for these samples to be analyzed further than what they already had been by the State Patrol Crime Lab. However, the Thurston County Sheriff's Office declines the offer. Detective Hamilton said that the Sheriff's Office, quote, declined to accept any kind of monetary contributions because we don't want to put any kind of priority on somebody just because they have the ability to pay for it. The CrowdSolve event took place in October of 2019, and the samples still have not been tested. That's a real shame, because it could put some things to rest, and I feel like the minds at the CrowdSolve event likely had some solid ideas that could be ruled in or ruled out by the DNA testing. I 100% agree that equity in cases should absolutely be a goal, but this is a case that has gone cold. And let's be honest, this case, before Detective Mickey Hamilton and CrowdSolve came along, was probably not treated with equity. Also, as to playing it fair, when a crime happens to a wealthy person, they have always had the ability to put up reward money, whereas the less fortunate have never had that same advantage. I view this similarly to having the cost of DNA tests covered by the family or organizations such as CrimeSolve. Sometimes things just aren't fair but to turn down resources of any kind just blows my mind. As of a 2019 article in The Olympian, there were about 30 unsolved cases in Thurston County. There are cases behind Karens that are waiting to have the resources available, and if the crowdsolve funds could possibly solve Karen's cold case, that means the next people in line get to move up too. I've looked for other reasons from the Thurston County Sheriff's Office that would make more sense as to why they would turn this money down, but I haven't come across anything nor have they informed Carly. Like I've mentioned before, my dad is retired law enforcement, and so it is hard for me to question the actions of any police department, since everyone I had around me growing up were amazing people and great officers. But I have also come to accept that sometimes things aren't right. Things fall through the cracks, and not all officers are like the ones that I have known. I have reached out to the CrowdSolve organization to see if their offer still stands to fund the DNA analyzation, and if any updates come, I will let you know. The reason that Carly is more determined than ever to get this case solved is that her grandma Sharon is in failing health. She wants to give her the answer to what has caused her so much agony over the past 14 years. Her dying wish is to finally know what happened to her daughter. My grandma has failing health. The day she found out that my mom was murdered, it started affecting her. I mean, she had like pretty good health, but not perfect back then, but this is literally killing her. She is not doing well. She is on the door to being on her deathbed, and that's not okay. I will not let her killer get away with this. We need answers before she dies. It's not natural the way my mom died, but a child loses a parent eventually, as painful as it is, no matter what circumstance. That's just how life is. 
a parent doesn't lose a child. That's unnatural. That's not okay. So as much pain and agony as I feel, my grandma and grandpa feel so much worse. And I can't even imagine. Like I said, this is literally eating her up alive and and killing her. I see it in her face. I see it in her physical health. She has to go to the doctor every week. She's almost bedridden because of this, because it torments her. My mother was murdered January 22nd, 2007, but the rest of her family, part of our soul and part of our being is murdered every day. And we get reminded of it every day and part of our soul gets taken away every day that we don't have answers or closure. Carly has several things in the works to spotlight Karen's cold case. She has a billboard that she has fundraised to get, but now needs more funds to continue to pay the rent to keep it up. She's also working on producing some face masks and other merch to get the word about her mom out there. She's also hired a private investigator, and so the funds donated to Carly will go to that as well. In the future, I would like to make face masks and t-shirts, maybe coffee mugs, and do a lot more of social awareness and community awareness and get maybe a little more merchandise so we can get a little more awareness out there. Obviously, we want these cases closed. We want this chapter closed. But unfortunately, if this chapter doesn't close, I still want to work with other families and be an advocate for other families and help them get answers and closure and justice and help them, you know, feel like they're doing something or everything that they can. I will link the Facebook page, the website, and Carly's Venmo account on my website at upperleftpodcast.com so you can help this case. I think one of the most overlooked ways you can help a cold case and show support for the victim's family is by sharing their story and information from one of the family-run sources, such as Facebook, the website, or by sharing this episode, which was approved by Carly before being released. Again, all of the resources will be linked on my website. I want to thank Carly for participating in this episode. I really admire her strength and determination to find her mom's killer. She was so kind to me. I'm new to this podcasting thing and I had the worst thing happen to me this week when my original recording of our interview didn't save when my laptop crashed. I shed a lot of tears over it and Carly was so gracious towards me and agreed to re-record it. I learned a lot from what happened and I really appreciate Carly's patience and kindness. From everything I came across in my research describing Karen Bodine, her daughter got all of these amazing traits that I just described from her mom. And that is the cold case of Karen Bodine. This week's wine that I paired with my true crime is Chateau St. Michel Harvest Select Riesling. It is made in a slightly sweeter style than the Columbia Valley Riesling that I absolutely love, but still shows some classic Riesling character. It offers rich flavors of ripe peaches balanced with crisp Washington Riesling acidity. It tastes like a bowl of fruit in a glass. It pairs well with crab, mild cheeses, Thai food, and fresh fruit. I paired my glass with a Washington State Honeycrisp apple, and it was a wonderful match. Cheers, and thanks for listening.
Second Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. You can follow the show on Instagram at Upper Left Corner Pod or on Facebook at Upper Left Corner Podcast. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.